Well, thanks so much again for letting me come out and share from God's Word with you. Our passage today is going to be James chapter 1, verse 1 through 12. James 1, 1 through 12. And so hear now the word of the Lord in James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we thank you for this word that you've spoken to those in the midst of adversity that we might learn in our trial in this season what it means to follow you and what a gospel lens looks like in order to delight in your word and be conformed more to look like the person of Jesus. Would you equip us now with your spirit and illuminate this word that we might learn and digest it uh, and, and apply it to our lives as only you can, spirit. So please come. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and pray all for the sake of his glory. Amen. So we're people who love stories of resilience. Culturally, societally, we love stories of resilience. And it plays out in a lot of the stories that we tell as a culture. One of the most recent examples of this is this story, the biographical account of Louis Zamperini. It was called Unbroken. It was written by Lauren Hillebrand. And it's a story of survival, resilience, and redemption is the tagline from the, the book. And it's a phenomenal book. It tells the story of Louis Zamperini, who was at one point an Olympic athlete, but became a World War II bomber pilot. And the tension of the story really picks up in uh, 1943, when on May, in May 27th of that year, Zamperini and 10 of his other crewmates were out on a routine mission trying to find a lost bomber plane. And a mechanical issue caused his plane to fail and instantly killed eight of his other crew members. And of the two survivors that, that survived the crash and himself, Zamperini, they were caused to drift a sea, at sea, lost for 47 days. One of his other crewmates died in that process. And then when they finally landed on sea, Zamperini and his, his fellow, I think it was his co-pilot who survived with him, they, they landed in Japanese-occupied territory during World War II. And they were instantly taken as prisoners of war and, became, and were tortured, basically, until the end of the war, routinely. 
For Zamperini, there was a particularly terrible figure called the bird who took an extra delight in torturing him for any information that he might have, even year, as far as a year into his captivity. He followed him from camp to camp as, as Zamperini was transitioned around the com- concentration camps in Japan and different Pacific territories. But the story, the story is really also a story of redemption. And, and after Louis Zamperini goes home, he comes home and his life is torn up with what we now know as PTSD. He's having nightmares of choking his captors. Uh, and the only thing that delivers him from that is he actually comes to know Christ at a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade in 1955 years later. And his life trajectory has changed tremendously. So that when he's reflecting on uh, his life later on, Hillenbrand writes of him that towards the end of his biography, Louis, when he thought of his history, what characterized or resonated with him most in his life was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. And his story is a story of humble endurance. It, it, it calls us out to be a people who want to know how we can humbly endure like that. And this passage in James, James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this passage to provide for us a lens of humble endurance, biblical humble endurance that's, that's rooted and anchored in the character of God Himself and also anchored in His Word of promise. And so that's what we're going to see as we look at this passage today. James is telling us that, that since trial comes from the providential hand of our gracious God, then we must anchor our souls in His character and Word if we ever hope to humbly endure. So if there's nothing else that you leave from this talk with today, you're gonna, my hope is that you'll see this, that, or this sermon today, that you will see that since James is saying our trials come from the providential hand of our God, we must anchor, his souls, anchor our souls in His character that He's revealed to us in Himself and also in His Word if we ever hope to humbly endure. And so we're going to see that through first, our first point is going to be a biblical lens for trial that James gives us in verses 2 through 4. And James says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And already as you and I hear this passage, we're thinking, really, James? Really? You're the brother of Jesus. You're writing to, an auth- like to a group of people who have had predominantly Jewish upbringing, Jewish heritage. They have converted out of their faith of Judaism into the faith of Christianity to trust in Jesus as Messiah. They are ostracized from that community now. They're they're suffering abroad in the community uh, for their faith and witness and association with Jesus Christ. And you're saying, consider it all joy, brothers. And it's almost like the voice of our cynical weariness at trial, begins to lift its ugly head and says, oh sure, yeah, James has an angle just like everybody else. Because you and I don't typically consider trial something that is a reason to be joyful. We know it's all bitter and very little sweet. Even though Scripture would tell us it's bittersweet. But what James is really telling us is he's saying, consider, count it, all joy, 
when you fall into, literally encounter or fall into trials. Because trials test your faith and that produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, we must let it have its full effect so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And this, this begins to really show us already that there's, there's two lenses that we sort of approach trial with. We love, we love trial and adversity in our stories with our favorite characters because that's how we know that they develop in their character. But when we look at our own lives and we consider trial, we recognize that we're not as eager to endure trial because we know it's going to hurt. And so when we hear James say, count it all joy, my brothers, it triggers either those of us who are prone to say, all right, I'm just going to bear up and endure. I'm going to grit my teeth and endure it. Or those who are just cynically weary or just weary and broken at what trial has done in their life and says, really? But James is laying out for us in here this this framework, this biblical lens for trial And he's showing us in verses 3 and 4 the mechanics of how trial works in our life. He says, consider all joy, knowing that the testing that you endure through trial produces steadfastness. And this word for testing, this word for testing is, it's it's a word that has a similar concept to what what people do to refine ore, metal ore, down to its, its very central metallic characteristics so that like example like gold refining gold in a fire so that it becomes more purified and more resilient it's not the word that says he's trying to to god is trying to sovereignly use trial in our lives to reveal whether we have faith or not he's using trial according to what james says to test us and to to tear away the dross of our faith and to strengthen it into something more pure and righteous and good and to use it to produce steadfastness in our lives. Well, what is steadfastness? It's a word that in the original languages means, it it means, this. James is saying it's the intended outcome of the test, number one. It's, it's, It's what our testing is supposed to produce. It's actually supposed to produce resilience in us, is what he's saying. And we don't typically think resilience is something that's cultivated through trial. We think trial has to be endured by something outside of us, which resilience is maybe a different sort of characteristic of. But the steadfastness that James is talking about that trial produces in our lives is a word that can be translated patience, endurance, fortitude. The the image is a picture of someone carrying a heavy load for a long time successfully. It's a word used to describe how we endure in the midst of our adversity. How we become resilient. And James is telling us, rejoice in your trial because your trial is actually a chance for you to become more steadfast. He's saying, your trial leads to steadfastness, which in order for it to have its full effect, it will have a trajectory that leads you to being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Another way of saying is what you should be in line with the redemption that God is wanting to accomplish in your life. 
James, the idea that James is driving at is not just trial produces steadfastness which leads to maturity, but trial changes you and strengthens your faith so that your hope is more fully set on our God and our Savior and empowered by the Spirit to become who you should be, to reflect the image of Jesus To be the person who's patient, who's faithful, who's enduring and carrying a heavy burden in the midst of, in the midst of adversity, for a long time, successfully. James is saying, friends, that trial is a gift of our Father's providence. And it challenges us because when we, in our culture, have come to so value our affluence and our prosperity. Trial is really incompatible with adversity. Or with, with, adversity is really incompatible with our trials. And it's incompatible with our trials because it's just so inconvenient. It means that you're, like, if your culture values, like ours does, personal prosperity and affluence, then trial seems to, it seems to be something that seems like you're not really as personally affluent or, or prosperous as you should be. And so, therefore, you're not as valued in the middle of our culture. And that leads us to be the kind of people that think that it's actually when we are out of trial and at rest that we can finally grow to maturity. But James is present, presenting a different theater for us in our Christian growth. He's saying, consider trial a gift, which is something that we need to say with incredible sensitivity because that can be used as a blunt stick to beat the weary to death. But James is saying, friends, that our God is so providentially in control that trial is the very mechanism, difficulty, suffering is the mechanism by which he uses to refine our faith and purify it and strengthen it. This is the same in Paul in Romans 5. When Paul writes in Romans 5, Verse 3, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. James is telling us that trial is a gift from our God to produce character and endurance and likeness to Jesus in our lives. And so that instantly makes us pause to ask this question of, friends, how big is your view of God's providence? What are your attitudes towards trial? Because our attitudes towards trial reveal how big we think God's providence is. There's the tendency to view trial as, like I said, just something to try harder in, self-effort. Grin and bear it and go through. But what happens when you burn out and break down? 
Our personal responsibility in the midst of our trials is definitely part of the equation of how we respond to them, but we are not meant to be people who just grin and bear it and endure through our self-effort because James is actually advocating a sense of humble dependence that we're going to see in just a minute. Then there's, like I said, the cynically weary. Those who believe that, uh, that it's all just going to work out anyways, so why do I even try? Or those who, who are just so weary and broken at trial in the midst of adversity that we find ourselves in, even now as a society and a globe, a world society, of just why do I even keep going? It seems like nothing I do can change things. James is inviting us to see that the realities of our trials, even our trials, come to us from the good hand of our Father, friends. So not even our trials are outside of His providence. In fact, He rules in our trial. He rules so as to sovereignly use our trials, as I've said, to make us more like Jesus. But then James shows us a way that we can actually anchor our souls in the midst of our trials. He shows us two things, two anchors where we can put ourselves in verses 5 to 8 and then in verses 9 to 12. In verses 5 to 8, the anchor that he's telling us to put our, our, our hope in, our identity, our trust in, is the anchor of none other than our Heavenly Father. He says in verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And it's interesting, because this, the, the way that James begins to anchor us in the midst of our trials by saying it's okay to admit that you don't know how to actually act. And isn't that what we need in the midst of our trial? We need someone who understands us, who understands our situation, knows how confounding it is, knows the increasing complexity of it, drives us crazy, and it makes our life feel meaningless, but yet who says, you know, I'm, I'm here for you. We have a God who, in the middle of our trial, like James says, if we find that we lack wisdom and we don't know what to do, we can ask Him. Because our God is a God who gives generously and without reproach. And it will be given to Him who asks. And it's interesting, too, that James is, it, it, the way that it comes across in the grammar of this section is James is saying, let it be a possibility that you do this. James is saying, with the force of an imperative, he's saying, I, I'm commanding you that if you lack wisdom, you must ask God if you hope to endure. If you lack wisdom and you want it, if you lack the knowledge to know what to do, you must ask your Father because your Father hears you and He cares for you. 
And He's the God who gives generously and without reproach. The idea of, of generously, like abundantly. He'll give you everything that you need in the midst of your trial. And without reproach, meaning He's not miserly in how He doles out His generous help. But He is a God who, in verse 17 of this chapter, says, Every good and perfect gift is from above from Him, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And James is saying, friends, it's actually the way that you endure humbly is you anchor yourself in the character of your God, our Father, who's revealed Himself and who has not changed the complexity of your trials. Say that He has. He has not changed, but He's the same. And He will generously give to you what you need. The wisdom, the practical know-how to make it through a situation. And, it, and how are we supposed to ask for wisdom? We're supposed to do it in faith, without doubting, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. He's commanding us to ask for wisdom. And he's saying, when we ask in faith, it will be given to us. This is not some sort of name it and claim it, easy believism kind of lie that, that we're prone to make the error of. What James is saying is that your father hears you and cares for you. And when you show or when you ask and trust based on the promises of who God is and his character, he loves to answer our prayers. Because when you ask with doubting, you're not certain of the character of the one whom you're asking. And the effect, as James says, is that you become like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Bouncing from place to place to place to place with no hope in the midst of your adversity and trial. And he goes on in verse 7 and 8 to say, that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. And this cuts at the heart of our self-sufficient response to trial and our cynically weary response to trial, right? Because this tells the self-sufficient responder to trial. It says, hey, look, friend, you actually need to know that you don't have what you have you don't have what you need to make it through, and you must ask your Father to even make it through. The path through trial is a path of dependence and humble trust in your Father. That's not to say you don't have anything you need to do in the midst of your trial. But self-sufficient, grit your teeth and bear it, endurance is not what we're shooting for. It also rebukes the cynically weary in a gracious way, because to be cynical is to assume that everyone has an angle. It's, it's, to, it's to always be observing and critiquing, but never engage loving or hoping, as Paul Miller says. And it's, it's assuming that you can't trust the heart of your father as he's revealed himself in his word, that he's going to use this for your adversity. But that's not to say that it's not hard. And this cuts at the heart of the cynically weary person. 
Because it says you really can trust that your father has good intentions for you. The drifter does not receive because he's insincere and inconsistent in his allegiance to God. And you know people like this in your everyday life, right? You know people that are like this drifter. It's the person in your family who is always misjudging your motives. It's, it's the neighbor that always knows and has an eye on what's going on in the neighborhood, right? And always wondering what someone's doing. It's the coworker who always looks out for himself and only listens to you as much as you think that, as much as they think that you'll help them because they've imbibed the idea that they have to look out for themselves. And any move in your place of work is really a power play to put them out. That person is double-minded. He's, he's hypocritical is what this text is saying. But this is all of us. This tendency is in all of us because we mistrust the heart of our Father. And this actually shows how we need our God who comes to us in the midst of adversity and hears us and gives us the wisdom to need, we need to persevere and endure. And it allows us to do it humbly because we didn't have the wisdom it took to make it through. And so that's the anchor of God himself. But the second anchor that James gives is the anchor of his word. And he actually begins to talk very strangely about rich and poor in verses 9 through 12. And commentators believe that, some, some believe that James is actually starting a new thought, a new passage, or a, a, new, a new teaching that's not related to the previous section of trial. But I, I honestly think there's a group of commentators that think this too. I'm not that smart. I'm just an intern. What do I know? Um, I, I think that James is actually saying that this, this passage He's talking about let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his, in his humiliation because James knows that in the midst of trial, no matter what station in life you find yourself, everything goes sideways. And there's no station that can be a secure place. And so James is saying, look, for those of you who are new believers, who've come into, who've come into faith, you need to take joy in the fact that you now have a Savior who meets you in the midst of your trial, who's with you. And for the rich in your humiliation, you who maybe are enduring the loss of adversity that you're facing, you need to boast in that too because that is something that God is going to use to change you into being more like Jesus. Trial has a way of affecting everyone in the midst of a difficult situation. And there's no station in life, like I said, that is protected from trial. And so whether rich or poor, we still have reason to exalt in the Father who hears us when we ask Him for wisdom. Because He's our God who wants us to anchor ourselves in Him and in His Word. And then James actually begins to quote from Isaiah. It's a passage, he's, and the rich, is, uh, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. He's reminding them 
Just like God reminded His people previously through the prophets, that though your situation changes, and particularly in the book of Isaiah, he's writing to the people who were in exile, and he was saying, look, you're going to be sent away in exile, but I'm actually going to, in Isaiah 40, he promises to bring them comfort. It's a passage of comfort of what God is going to do to bring them back from their exile. And in that passage, God reminds them, the flowers fall, the grass fades, but the word of God endures forever. And I think James is trying to play on that language to remind his people that you actually have another anchor for your soul in God's word. God's word endures past your adversity. And it even brings with it promises that he talks about in verse 9, or verse 12, sorry. It brings a promise of the trajectory of our trial. We are given a word of promise to anchor our souls in, and that word of promise tells us of the trajectory of our trial. When he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, our God gives us his word to anchor our souls in in the midst of this trial. Because he wants us to remember that there will come a day where there will be no more trial. And this promise of the one who endures is not the one who by their self-sufficiency Brings, brings themselves through trial. But it's the promise of the one who would endure which echoes out the final word of our God in Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, James is telling us to anchor our souls in God's word because God's word promises us that there will be a day where there is no more trial. And we know that there's going to be a day that is no more trial and that there's blessing for those who endure under trial because of the one who was cursed even though he endured, of our Savior Jesus. And what James is trying to say to us today is he's trying to say, anchor your souls in the God who has revealed himself to you, who is with you and hears you in the midst of your trial. And anchor yourself in his word, to persevere humbly through, because there's no other hope. But we as believers have an endless supply of hope in the fact that our Savior was cursed, though he endured, so that we would never be cursed in the midst of our trial, and that it would dictate the final story on our lives. But that we would endure And that we would endure not just to survive, but to become who we should be. Perfect and complete 
lacking in nothing. That's not to say that's going to happen in this life, but I just read in the passage in Revelation 21 that it will be a product of the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, in this global season, this is so critical for us to remember. Because what is, as we are anxious about the reality of what we face in the midst of a global pandemic, as we are anxious in the midst of our relationships that feel the weight of adversity and conflict and the curse of this world, our God is telling us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our sickness, that we can have hope and we can anchor ourselves in Him. And that the only way we can actually endure is by trusting in Him and in His Word. And when we grasp the fact of the One who was cursed for us, that we might endure. It has the effect of, 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 of what Zamperini said. That as he contemplated all that he had been through in the end of his life, what stood out to him most was the divine love that had intervened to save him. And the redemption that his Savior had accomplished in his life was the same thing that granted him hope in the midst of his adversity. I'm not sure where you find yourself in this season. I'm not sure if you face the economic certainty of this pandemic. I'm not sure if you're anxious about our, this, this church's return to worship. Um, I'm not sure if, if you know what tomorrow will hold. I know that you don't know what tomorrow will hold, and I'm not sure if you're anxious about it. But one thing that's certain for us in the midst of this season that our God wants us to cling to is the fact that because adversity comes through the providential hand of our gracious God, then we must hope in His character and His Word. We must anchor ourselves there if we're to ever hope to humbly endure. As John Calvin would say, when we do this, it allows us to see something that's bitter actually become sweet to us. Because the fruit that our Father wants to produce in our lives through trial means that our God is with us in our suffering and trial providing for our salvation and giving us an occasion to rejoice. And so friends, I, I don't mean to make this a, a sermon that guilts you into thinking that you're not joyful, but to recognize the richness of our Father in this season in particular, that He's brought whatever adversity you face into your lives to change you. I think that's what James would want us to know. And I think that's what we need to pray and ask His Spirit to do in us. So let's pray for that. Our Father and our God, would You be at work in our souls to apply this Word to us now? 
Father, some of us are weary. Some of us are heavy laden and burdened with the reality of affliction in our lives, be it disease, be it be it uh, adversity, uh, be it broken relationships, be it the pandemic situation that we find ourselves in. We are overwhelmed and we find ourselves in the midst of peril. And it's a peril that we must look to you in to anchor ourselves. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, would you be our anchor? Would you encourage us and bring us to yourself even in the midst of this adversity to make us fruitful followers of you so that we may look back on this season, whatever season of adversity we find ourselves in, and we find that it was a time where you were nearer than we would have ever imagined and more dear than we could have ever dreamed. Conform us, make us like your son Jesus through these means and help us to be people who follow you in the midst of our adversity. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.